welcome. We're here to talk about bloodborne viruses, STIs and HIV in GP land. How to approach this topic? My name is Miriam Grotowski and I'm a GP from rural New South Wales and I have an interest in sexual health and medical education. I'm also the chair of the GP STI Working Party for New South Wales Health. I'd just like to acknowledge that this podcast is being filmed on various Aboriginal lands across our wonderful country. I'd just like to acknowledge Elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal people that are joining us today. New South Wales is a world leader in responding to bloodborne viruses and STIs with a strong partnership helping this. The partnership is between government, community organisations, clinicians, academics, and those with lived experience. Together, these people combine a driving force in this response. The contribution of GPs is key to our success, with primary care diagnosing and treating the majority of all STIs in New South Wales. Together, we've had considerable success in reducing rates of HIV and Hep C, but you know, those STIs, they're still proving pretty difficult to manage. STI infections continue to rise. Of particular concern is the number of syphilis diagnoses that we see in the New South Wales general population. Unfortunately, this has been accompanied by a rise in congenital syphilis cases. These are entirely preventable outcomes and they could be improved by increased antenatal screening for syphilis. New South Wales Health has a goal of eliminating hepatitis C virus as a public health concern by 2028. New hep C treatments are really effective with greater than 95% cure rates, and they're also associated with minimal side effects. We're also committed to reducing hepatitis B infection and improving the health outcomes for those who live with hepatitis B. So, with all of this in mind, Today, we hope to explore which patient groups are most at risk, which of ours in general practice do we really want to focus on and why? If we're going to focus on some patients, how do we start the conversation? How do we do it respectfully? How do we normalise these discussions as part of our everyday practice? Importantly, we'll hear about the patient experience and how this can inform our GP practice going forwards. Now, clearly, I can't do all of this on my own, so I have a wonderful panel to support me today. I'll let them introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Kim. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for the opportunity. My name's Kim Collins. I work um, as a sexual health physician in a couple of rural parts of New South Wales, or regional parts of New South Wales, so on the mid-north coast and also down uh, in Murrumbidgee. I started life as a GP um, and worked for about a decade in general practice but moved sideways into sexual health and maintain an interest in trying to support the GP workforce um, to, to do sexual health uh, well and uh, to, to know where they can go for some support. Thanks, Kim. That's great. Great to have you along. Um, next, we might hear from Catherine. Thanks, Miriam. My name's Catherine McQuillan. I'm a hepatology nurse practitioner for Western New South Wales Local Health District. 
Um, I'm passionate about providing access to healthcare for rural patients. I'm really largely focused on the elimination of hepatitis C, so spending my time testing at-risk populations in the community setting. Um, and I've just started using a mobile van to get out, out into the outreach community, utilising the point-of-care testing machine, dry blood spot testing and venipuncture testing. Um, I provide those assessments, diagnosis, education and support and treatment to clients with hepatitis C. Great, Catherine. So a wealth of experience there that we'll be tapping into today. Um, Murray, can we hear from you next, please? Thanks, Miriam. Hi, everyone. I'm Murray. I've spent the majority of the last two years working in youth advocacy. Um, I'm currently working now in family, domestic and sexual violence policy, but I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the concerns I've heard from young people I've worked with in accessing sexual health care. Great. Great to have you along. And joining us um, last but by no means least is Harrison today. Hi, um, thank you for letting me uh, take part uh, today. So my name is Harrison Sarasola and I work for ACON, which is the New South Wales based LGBTQ health organisation. So at ACON, I'm the team leader of the peer education team. Uh, and our teams focus specifically on supporting gay, bi, queer men, trans and cis across New South Wales to access the latest sexual health and HIV information they require to make informed and empowered decisions about their sexual health. Um, it's peer-led work uh, that's driven through free community workshops, forums, events and online engagement. A lot of that is also volunteer driven. Um, and I'm also a community member myself and I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. So really looking forward to also bringing that perspective to the conversation today as well. Great. So you can see we've got a wealth of experience and knowledge to share with you today. And we might just kick it off by asking the panel Guys, look, why are bloodborne viruses, STIs and HIV important to the community? Why should GPs be thinking in this space? Might flick to you first, Harrison. Thanks, Miriam. Um, the, I think the thing that makes this uh, a really important topic for community broadly is the fact that there's still a lot of stigma in our communities around bloodborne viruses, STIs and HIV. Uh, and this is often driven by a, a lack of information, um, but also a lack of discussion around sex and sexual health more broadly, uh, particularly uh, as soon as you come out of that inner city context. So um, when I'm having conversations in Sydney, CBD, versus when I'm having conversations in Penrith, obviously those conversations look vastly different and that's only an hour away. Mm. So I imagine that that obviously changes again in a rural setting or a remote setting again, you know. Mm. Um, there's also the issue um, for LGBTQ communities specifically around a, lax, a lack of access to tailored and relevant sexual health information. So often the information that is available to LGBTQ communities is broad, uh, tends to have a clinical tone to it, although that is changing, uh, and doesn't always discuss the types of sex that people in our communities are having in a way that makes sense to them. Um, or, or as well in a way that's culturally appropriate to them either, because of course, LGBTQ communities are incredibly diverse mm. and we uh, run across a range of intersections. And so obviously 
when we're thinking about tailored health information, uh, that obviously has to communicate on a, on a number of different levels, not just sexuality and sexual practice. Mm, great. So some interesting points that you raise there and some challenges, I guess, for us as GPs, you know, how do we manage that? Um, Kim, what about you? What do you feel is the reason that we should bother in this space? Well, Miriam, if you think about it, life is actually a sexually transmitted condition for most of us. And most humans um, have have or have had a sex life and sometimes that can place them at risk of STIs, bloodborne viruses, HIV and essentially they're usually just unlucky and I think trying to destigmatize and de-discriminate if that's a word STIs and bloodborne viruses are key um, as Harrison mentioned to improving our ability to access populations that are at risk and give them better health outcomes. Uh, these Infections can cause um, serious morbidity and mortality, and I think in terms of health, uh, they're a really important part of our of our work, particularly mm. in mm. Catherine Murray, did you have anything to add to that? Those wise comments. Um, yeah, so I think um, it's a fundamental, basic human right to be disease free. Um, and of course, in Australia, we need to identify the people who have got these bloodborne viruses like Hep C and B through testing. We've got to provide education and support to patients and, and give them the treatment that they um, are entitled to. Um, and, and a lot of that work is around, um, you know, educating people about healthy lifestyles, harm minimisation strategies um, to help reduce some of that stigma, like Harrison was saying, um, to even have a conversation around um, BBV and STIs. Um, we know that bloodborne viruses like Hep B and C can cause long-term liver damage. So this is really testing is like a preventative strategy um, long-term as well. So... Yeah, I just um, mm. really think we need to increase that testing and identify and offer treatment to the people who need it. Yeah, Murray, did you want to add anything at this point? Uh, yeah, thanks, Miriam. I echo what's been said about the ongoing role of stigma. I think there's also still a bit of fear associated with having an STI, HIV or bloodborne virus uh, due to a lack of information around the consequences of testing positive for one of these or apprehension around having conversations with past sexual partners. However, I think this is a really important topic because most people, including young people, are really eager to look after their own health and the health of those they have a sexual relationship with. Mm, absolutely. And I think, you know, GPs are really well placed um, to have these conversations. So uh, we already know that most of the STIs are managed in primary care. So. Um, so, so people come and see us as GPs and they may be at risk. Um, how do we start this conversation? Uh, what are good opportunities and how do we make it relevant and appropriate and respectful? Um, so I think probably I might go to you first, Murray, in that instance, because this is the thing that I think many GPs, we know that we're meant to be doing some more screening and some more testing in this area. But for many GPs, it's it's a tricky conversation to have. They feel worried and concerned that they will be disrespectful or not have the knowledge of how to ask the questions. What advice have you got for GPs in that place? I think on this topic, um, it's important to use language carefully, trying not to be judgmental or labelling patients as gay or straight, but rather asking them about the kinds of people 
they've had a sexual relationship with. I think it's important also to keep at the front of your mind that young people might be presenting to a practice having already experienced discrimination in their family or communities or with a range of fears around how they will be treated in a health setting. Um, so being honest and open with the patient, I think is important. Great, thanks. Harrison? Yeah, I think just to kind of build on what Mari was saying just then is I think also let the patient lead. So, mm. you know, equally, you know, labels and labeling can be really, really harming, but it can also be very affirming. So if we think about like, if you were seeing a, a trans guy who's kind of come in, um, his identity is going to be incredibly important to him. And so actually, if as a GP, we're just creating that space to just listen to how the patient is talking about their experience and how they're describing like the language that they're using, mm. usually you can pick up on that language and just mirror it. And that's going to feel a lot better for the client straight away. The other thing as well that you can do is you can try and just build in some little basic um, verbal cues into uh, your interactions that's going to make the safe a lot spacer for queer people entering the practice. So for instance, pronouns. Pronouns are a really important um, thing within our communities. And so by just saying something like, hello, I am GP and my pronouns are XYZ. Can I ask for your pronouns? Uh, you've immediately gone above and beyond for a community member and they're going to feel immediately uh, more likely to be able to build that trust with you and be able to kind of disclose a bit more about um, themselves. I also think as well, uh, you can build that into your processes. Um, just, I think the little caveat with building it into your like forms and processes is maybe kind of reach out to organizations like ACON um, just to kind of check in or to your, your, your local health district, just to check in on language um, uh, because also obviously like everything in community, we have to keep pace with community and adapt as community adapts and changes how it talks about itself. Um, so just having a reference point like, you know, your sexual health clinics, your local health districts, ACON and other organisations like us is, is also really useful as well. So I think there's some really great points there. And um, I really like that you said mirroring the language that's being used by uh, the person that's in front of you. And I think that's something that we can all do. And it does in my own experience, make the consultation much easier for everyone, actually, myself included as the GP. Um, the other thing to note, too, is our prescribing software is moving. Um, so, Murray and Harrison, you might be pleased to know that we have the opportunity to record someone's preferred pronouns and preferred gender. Um, and that way, we're not actually asking that every time a person comes in. So, I think, you know, there are some things that we can do as a process that makes things a bit um easier for the next person who might see that same person. So, Kim, though, we've heard about the ways to do this. Have you got some tips, some practical tips, language, the words? What do we actually say? That one of the main uh, things I'd recommend is the more you do it, the, the better you're going to get and the mm. easier it gets. And I think that most of us are used to speaking to a broad range of people about a broad range of things. And so... I think a little bit of nuance around that, though. And I think um, Harrison mentioned sort of linking and, and a reason. So I usually will preface, for me, for me it's easy when I'm in sexual health mm. land to do it because people are kind of expecting it. But within a general practice setting, you try and make a link between what the person's coming worried about and why you need to ask them about their sex life. And I just do a really simple question like, you know, say, for example, you've had some pain in your lower 
in your lower tummy, you know, and you're worried about this. Sometimes this can be late, related to a sexually transmitted infection. Do you mind if I ask you some questions about your sex life? And then the words I would encourage people to use are words like partner. So not, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, those sort of very mm. gender and um, sort of sexual orientation based labels, but more like, do you have a partner or partners? Do you have regular partners? Are they male, female, trans? Well, all of those. Mm. Um, yeah, and get a bit of an idea of uh, what sort of sex life is going on for them and therefore direct what sort of testing you're going to do. So it's very useful clinically for you to do appropriate testing and, and to, to kind of formulate a bit of a DD about differential diagnosis about what's going on. And I think the important point that you've made there in just those examples, Kim, is that it's actually quite quick. So, so long as you're actually saying um, what you're doing, why you're asking this um, and using non-judgmental language and not making assumptions. So I think that's the thing that can be really tricky and it will really put off um, someone coming to see us, I believe, if we've made assumptions about mm -hmm. their sexuality or about their practices or we appear to be judging in the way that we're asking. So I think, you know, there's those quick tips and tricks. I, I use similar language, Kim. I tend to say, you know, when you have sex, I've gone away a little bit from partners because some of my young people say to me, they're not a partner, I just have sex with them. Oh. Um, but, you know, when you have sex, is it with males, females, trans or both? Yeah, like you said. Um, and, you know, then we talk about the practices and what they might do. So I think, you know, there's a, for the GPs listening, there's a few tips and tricks about sexual histories. Um, Catherine, I might go to you now what about histories regarding other risks risks for bloodborne viruses how might we go about that um i think like kim was just saying after she's done her assessment then she might add uh, on about the sexual health screen so if somebody's coming into your surgery for some other completely you know other thing like a sore leg or something um or and you're offering some blood tests or, or they come in with cholesterol or problems like that or diabetes then you could kind of say um you, you know frame up a conversation to say oh look um we're actually doing a bit of a blitz on viral hepatitis these next few months we're really trying to target anyone who might not have ever had a test um and um you get bloodborne viruses by you know injecting drugs or having unsterile tattoos or if you've been born overseas, list some of those risk factors and then you can say, well, you know, does any of that sound like something that we should test you for? Um, do you think you've been at risk of any of those things? So the patient doesn't really have to disclose any of those risks on the spot. We can just say, mm -hmm. yep, that, um, I, yes, I would like a test. And so once they've asked for the test, we can just add that on as well. Um, along with their cholesterol test. I think, um, you know, we really need to focus on um, the systems, like you were saying with your software, like at the Aboriginal Medical Service, when you're doing your 715, it might have the sexual mm. health screen on there, but it doesn't really mention the bloodborne virus screen. So mm. um, having a look at the systems and making sure you've got bloodborne virus uh, risk factors in there. So you do have to kind of bring that up in a, in a conversation. Um, and just normalising it, like I wish people could talk about viral hepatitis just like they talk about hypertension or diabetes, you know, um, and I just, I wish it was easy and there wasn't that stigma. So um, I think, you know, showing interest in the person's life, asking them about their family history of liver disease problems opens up these conversations around other risk factors as well. 
that's a really good point that Catherine and Kim both make. So I just wanted to kind of give feedback around being a community member accessing um, services through a GP. So mm. Kim said sex life. Just mm. like that, that immediately makes me feel more at ease because the thing that everyone is afraid and nervous about talking about, which is sex, is now talked about. And so just like that, as Catherine was saying, you know, um, that she wished that it was a normal conversation to be having, I fully agree. And I think as a GP, the the power that you have in that space is to to actually really create that that environment for your clients. So I think literally, Kim, if you were my GP, I'd feel very comfortable having a chat to you about sexual health screening just because you used a language that makes sense to me about mm. um, my experience. So that's awesome. Mm, so there's some great tips for the GPs listening. Um, Catherine, you mentioned when you were talking about hepatitis C some risk uh, groups and I think for the GPs out there it's really useful to hear who are the top sort of groups to have in their minds but I'll just throw it to you can you just go through you mentioned a few I heard but just um, have you got a list there for us? Yep sure um, so if you um, go to the Australasian Society of HIV and Hepatitis Medicine which is called ASHAM they have really great resources online for this so I'll just go through some of the at-risk populations but I really want GPs to think about if a patient has never had a hep C or a hep B test HIV test um, if there's no record then this is the perfect opportunity to have a baseline test um, to check people as well so our at-risk populations are men who have sex with men young people um, so a lot of our new hep C notification rates are coming from the younger population um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds um, and so people who come from um, the Eastern Mediterranean regions, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, Western Pacific region, Africa and some of the Americas, they have high prevalence rates of Hep B and C. Um, so we really just need to be mindful of country of birth when, when you've got a, a patient coming in. Um, people who uh, also travel to countries with these high prevalences and, you know, people are going overseas and having unsterile medical procedures. They might be having um, unsterile tattooing or piercing or, you know, be getting um, some plastic surgery and things. So we just need to be mindful of those clients. Um, our sex workers and their clients are at risk. Sexual partners of members of any of these priority populations should be tested. Um, pregnant women and their babies uh, should be tested for viral hep B and C um, and people who inject or have a history of injecting. So people who may have used once or twice in their younger years but don't really identify as an injecting drug user but um, they, they might have had a history of it. Um, and people who have recently been in custodial settings. So we know there's really high percentage or prevalence of hep C in prisons. Um, so if they've been in prison recently, they should also have a test. Wow, so it's a really comprehensive list and I can't remember all of those always in my head. So you mentioned that you, there's several tools out there. There's also the New South Wales GP testing tool that can do so. Um, 
those listening, the information about these resources is included at the end of this podcast. So you can actually just click on the links and see the resources. So you mentioned some really good um, ideas there and we're hearing this theme of normalising it in practice and using language to help our patients feel comfortable. But what about us as GPs? You know, there's a reason that we don't raise this for some of us. For some of us, it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable and you know that's actually okay because we're humans too and we bring ourselves to this um, conversation as people who have backgrounds, ideas, thoughts, and honestly, for some of us, biases. So, you know, talking about that is just being realistic. It comes into many parts of our practice as GPs. But, panel, have you got some suggestions about how we might manage that best? Yeah, I just think it's about that process of checking in, isn't it? You know, like, Mm. how do I feel about talking about sex? Am I comfortable talking about sex? Mm. Also, you know, when we think about health broadly, and especially at a public health level, we often think about what do community members uh, even think about what health is? And it's the same with sex. Like, what is sex for this person? Um, What is sex for me? And how do I feel about that? And, And all of those things that come with that. So I think that's a really important process to go through as a GP because if you do feel unsure or if you are feeling um, like sex isn't a topic that you've had a lot of lived experience talking about, that's maybe a cue to reach out to organisations who talk about sex all the time and are frankly over talking about sex sometimes, um, who can kind of give you those tips and tricks to just get you more exposed. You know, Kim mentioned before at the start of the podcast, the more you do something, the easier it gets. And this is one of those things. It's a little bit like exposure therapy, you know, if you're a bit apprehensive about sex, creating opportunities for yourself, learning and development opportunities for yourself where you can speak to people who do talk about sex a lot um, will give you, you'll pick up so much in such a short time, I think. Well, Catherine, what would you like to add on this? Um, I just wanted to mention that um, uh, stigma and discrimination is really becoming a focus in our New South Wales um, viral hepatitis strategies. And so we're trying to decrease stigma and discrimination as a barrier to prevention and testing and treatment so um, people can engage in the health service in a way that they feel comfortable without the judgment um, and and like I said framing that up as a liver problem rather than a a bloodborne virus Um, and I just want to sort of think about um, you know people who 80% of people who are diagnosed with hep C might have an injecting drug history so we know that there's negative connotations around that it's socially unacceptable in some people's framework we know it's illegal and um, you know we we do bring our own biases to this situation Um, and so that sort of um, is just sort of how do how is a GP working to reduce some of these barriers in their surgery to um, to to let people engage into that health service and feel confident and comfortable with those people because we all have these biases, all of us, um, and yeah. how, do, how do we manage that and not um, and provide that really good top-notch service to people? Mm. Harrison? And just really briefly to build on that as well, um, Catherine, and there's so many really good points there. It's a part of the New South Wales HIV strategy as well. We've added the pillar of stigma um, because if we're going to achieve in New South Wales the virtual elimination of HIV Mm. transmissions in New South Wales, we really need to go after stigma because it's actually acting as as a fundamental block for a lot of people 
to seek testing, but also to seek and access treatment as well. So I couldn't agree more. Um, but it's funny as well, right? So we're talking about normalization and it doesn't sit just within BBVs or no, STIs or HIV. It, it really does permeate in a number of other health conditions as well. So uh, I think this is a really awesome conversation we're having because of that. Mm. And Kim, I'm going to come to you just to hear your thoughts on this as well. But I just wanted to mention there's some really good um, points that are being made here for GPs and stuff to think about. It's not like we're going to master this necessarily overnight. I think it does take practice. And we've heard that there are tips and tricks from this podcast, from some training that might be available or through those websites. There's some ideas on a lot of those um documents that give you sort of phrases and opening statements so that you can practice them and feel comfortable with that. Kim, what did you want to add to this conversation? Uh, I think one of the reasons GPs struggle with uh, doing the sexual health history and talking about sexual health matters is a fear around opening up the Pandora's box. And that can relate to things like, is this going to be a disclosure about a sexual assault? Is this going to be do I need to worry about consent in this? You know, is this a 15-year-old? Do I need to be, you know, what's the legal, medical legal situation? And, and also the reality of the time pressures of general practice. Mm. But I think in terms of styling your practice around sexual health, you are in an ideal a situation where you'll have recurrent contact with this person. You don't have to get it all done in the first consultation, right? But you will have the opportunity, if you've gained their trust and their confidence, of getting them back if they're worried into the future. So, you know, you, you're going to be doing it in little pieces rather than one big block. And I think that's why you know, primary care is so important in terms of provision of, of, of sexual health care. And we're really aware that GPs are being bombarded by so many things they've got to do. And I can hear many GPs out there going, but how do I fit this in, like you just said, to that 15-minute consultation? But the beauty of general practice is that we don't necessarily have to do it all at once. You know, we could sort of raise the topic. We could make it seem like we're an approachable space. You know, we could... Um, do a brief intervention in the first instance to get someone back. So I think, you know, and then that's respectful both of the GP's time and the patient's time too. You know, they might need a little bit of time to process whether they want to continue to share with this person. Is this the person that they really want to have that conversation with? Harrison? Sorry, really quickly to add, because I know that Catherine's probably got to jump in as well, but I just wanted to quickly say that's a really good point about trying to fit everything into the same session and actually missing the fundamental, uh, mm. one of what I would regard as a community member, but also as a, as a community educator, one of the most important things to remember is it's all about trust. So, you know, if um, we've had many stories where trans clients will go into a GP they are there with like a broken wrist is a really good example. And the GP wants to talk about everything else but the broken wrist as an example. So I think we need to be careful. I've had instances myself where the GP has done the absolute right thing and wanted to really quickly talk about prep with me. But the problem is, is I'm there for a mental health care plan and I'm okay with prep. I don't want to talk about prep. I'm there yeah. to talk about a mental health care plan. So um, prioritizing the the relationship, that therapeutic relationship and the trust building uh, is going to see you uh, come out on top, I think, in the long, the short, medium and long term over mm. just maybe trying to do all of the things all at once. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, 
Catherine, while we're coming to you, I also want us, the panel to be thinking about, um, we're talking about in the consultation and the conversations that can happen, but what about actually making the environment inviting? How do we let people know that this is a safe practice to have these conversations or in fact that we're encouraging you to seek care for these um, conditions in our practice? So Catherine, you wanted to say something? I just wanted to mention that um, often there's a lot of people who um, suffer with multiple layers of stigma um, and I just wanted to mention quickly, I had a patient who had gone to ED to um, get some acute care and he came across and to my office instead, he left there, he, he was very unhappy and he just said, oh, I don't know why they were judging me. I don't know if they think I was a junkie or if I was gay or if it's because I had hep C or if I'm on the methadone program. And at that point, I looked at this guy and I just thought, I've never even been aware that there is all of these multiple levels of stigma that he walks around with and that when he comes into a health service that we're constantly judging every little aspect, let alone the, the, the reason he went into ED in the first place. So I guess I just wanted to mention that when people have these multiple layers of stigma, um, it actually results in them not accessing the care and getting poorer health outcomes if we're not sort of addressing that um, in the right way when we're um, meeting up with them. Um, mm. And I guess, you know, just for GPs, having those posters in their surgeries saying, um, you know, Hep C cured campaigns, there's loads of free posters that you can get from Hep New South Wales. Um, I think um, having, like you were talking about before, Miriam, about being proactive around your medical director software, your best practice software, you can actually do audits, you can um, code patients and search for at-risk clients and create sort of recall lists on people um, who you might need to get back in. So um, identifying a champion in your GP surgery, there'd be a practice nurse and a, a practice a GP who are really passionate about following up clients with um, bloodborne viruses and STIs and then recalling those patients in who might be at risk from those at-risk groups that we just mentioned as well. So being proactive around your, um, your software and um, recalling patients who might need mm. testing. Yeah, really practical points there, Catherine. And I know one of the things our practice tries to do is have a blitz on a particular topic for a month just to really highlight it to all GPs. So, you know, you could have the month where you look at hep C, um, you might have a month where you're doing chlamydia testing. You just have a month where you're really focusing on a particular aspect, checking people's immunisation status, for example. So um, really um, practical ways that we can do it. Now, Murray, what other things would make a practice sort of look like this is the sort of place you'd want to come if you want to have these conversations? Thanks, Miriam. Oh, yes, on creating a welcoming and inclusive environment, I think that young people I've worked with will regularly look at the practice website or read the profiles of the GP to see whether sexual health is listed as an interest or whether they've listed any support or training working with priority populations like First Nations or queer people. Uh, for many young people, this signals to them that their sexual health is important and that they will be safe and comfortable when they arrive for their appointment. This mm. could also happen in the waiting room uh, with what was mentioned before by Catherine around posters or maybe condoms on a table, things like this. Um, I think it just sends a really strong message that sexual health is okay to speak about in this practice and the young person is much more likely to either present for sexual health in the first instance or 
maybe they're going for an unrelated reason, but they see those posters on the wall. So next time they'll come back and bring up some new questions. Yeah, great. So we're hearing about posters. I know some practices put the posters up in the bathrooms, particularly in rural areas, if they're a bit worried about what uh, some people being offended, which is what has been feedback from some GPs in more rural areas, is they feel they can't put some posters up because they might offend some of their population. We make suggestions such as put the posters up in the GP's room, put the posters up in the toilet so that patients have an opportunity still to see this information. Um, we'd love to say that we'd be able to change it by um, completely changing the community but I think things like this take time and it's being respectful to the GP practice to allow them to come up with ideas that work for them and their population in their situation. Patients have actually taught me heaps so you know sometimes there's language that's used that I have to ask for an explanation and patients are so willing to, to um, explain things to me. We have a laugh together, I muck something up in a conversation and it's just about being genuine and apologising too if I can see I've offended and it was not you know, not my intent. And, and uh, you know, one patient I remember very, very early on in my work with um, HIV patients um, where a conversation was really clunky and the guy said, let's role play this, mate, so you do this better next time. You know, how amazing was that, that I got that sort of um, feedback from a patient and, and, and I used that language and the way that that patient helped me um, going forward. So, yeah, you're right, like being yourself, being genuine, recognising that we're not perfect and no one's asking for perfection. I don't think our patients are asking for perfection, but they are asking us to have a go, not be scared of having a go, because otherwise, and particularly in rural areas, that patient may not have access to other care. And I love that. If you, again, you know, that's like the fact that you were even able to have your your patient respond to you in that way just tells me that you did all of those things. You know, you normalize the conversation. I think sometimes when I'm training people to facilitate, um, especially community volunteers to facilitate um, our workshops and whatnot, um, labeling what's happening can be really um, helpful and just saying, oh gosh, didn't it get awkward in here? Um, I'm so sorry that I'm finding this really clunky. Can you help me out here? And inviting them in to, to guide you as well. Uh, I feel like it works pretty much nine out of 10 times for me. So I love, I love that Miriam. And if we were in session together, I would have thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting to Kim, you raised earlier, and I think this is true. GPs out there, you can draw on the experience you have with difficult conversations in lots of your work. Many of us talk about topics that are quite tricky. We heard sexual assault mentioned we talk about palliative care and death and dying you know there are tricky conversations that we have and the skills that we've developed over time in those areas can absolutely be transferred to this sort of area so you know GPs you do have the skills it's some for some of us it's a confidence to try it so GPs don't need to be experts at everything you know but they do need to have a go for our patients' sake and for our community's sake. And we've heard from our panel some absolutely fantastic suggestions about how GPs can help make this part of normal practice, how we can help make our patients feel more comfortable in this space and how we can start those conversations to help try and reduce the numbers of STIs and bloodborne viruses that go untreated in our community. So going to each member in the panel, I just want you to remember uh, to give our GPs something that they can take home, something to remember going forward. And we might start with you first, Murray. What would you like to say to the GP group out there as they finish this podcast? Thanks, Miriam. Uh, thinking about the last part of the podcast discussion, 
I think there's a really great opportunity here to make appointments educational and to explain to patients why certain questions or information is useful. Uh, a lot of young people I've spoken with say that these kind of approaches make them feel quite empowered to look after their own health and they can walk away with a greater understanding of a certain health issue and the options that are available to them then and moving forward. That's great, yeah. So they're an opportunity for education as well. I think that's a really good point to remember. Thanks, Murray. Kim? What would you say to the GP group out there? I was just reflecting on this and writing a few little notes. I would encourage people to embrace the Shakespearean nature of humans and their behaviours, to be able to practise your poker face because some people will tell you some pretty wild stuff, um, but the underlying reason for doing this is to kind of enable them to empower themselves and us to help them to, to maintain good health and to... to um, have treatment available to them that will make a huge difference to their life. And this last case of Hep C is an, an example of that. The treatment of HIV is an example of that. So, yeah, give it a burl. It's fun. It's interesting. And it beats diabetes and cardiovascular disease. <laughs> Thanks for that, Kim. All right, Harrison. Yeah, I'm just going to build on what Kim just said and just say it's all about relationships. You know, you wouldn't knock on the door to your next door neighbour who you haven't spoken to, even though you've been living there for five years and asked for a cup of sugar, or maybe you would. I don't know the sort of person you are. But you do want to really spend that time building that relationship and that trust because um, that's the currency that you're going to then be trading with with a person when you have to bring up uncomfortable or um, confronting topics with a hmm. client. So really work on that relationship um, as, a, as a priority would be my advice. Great. And Catherine, you get the final word. Yep. Um, so I actually have a few couple of top tips. Um, so I just want GPs to think about um, which patients um, we can increase testing to. to. Um, and whether GPs are treating or if they want to refer, whatever really supports them um, and the patient the best, whichever sort of process works, um, there's loads of support networks out there. Um, think about that uh, viral hepatitis can lead to advanced liver disease and liver cancer and that we really need to provide some wraparound surveillance around those, um, those disease states as well. And be aware of your own biases and what we bring to these encounters each time um, because our clients have, um, you know, felt a lot of stigma and discrimination from healthcare workers in the past. So just to be mindful of that. Um, and of course, I forgot to mention earlier that the Primary Health Network, you know, they're out there to help support GPs. You can create a PIP project around hepatitis. Um, and um, so there's sort of opportunities to work with your PHN to um, do PIP projects and um, yeah, to help towards the elimination of hep C. And finally, we just want more passionate GPs around advanced liver, dis uh, liver disease fields um, because I think the liver disease field has been left behind and usurped by cardiac disease and sexy lung disease and renal disease, but really there's not a lot of people out there, you know, deeply passionate about liver disease. So it'd be great to get more GPs on board. Thanks for that, Catherine. And we definitely can see and hear your passion in that space as well. So some really good advice. For GPs out there that are wondering how to link their patients in with peer support networks, just don't forget that for patients um, 
with IV drug use histories, that newer is available for the patients from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. There's the MARS service. It's a multicultural HIV and hepatitis service. And for general information for both um, peers um, and GPs, there's a Hepatitis New South Wales site. So don't forget to access those. We've been discussing lots of useful resources uh, during this podcast today, and you may have heard mention SHIL, which is a sexual health information link. Don't forget that that's a great resource for GPs, 9 to 5.30, Monday to Friday, a doctor or nurse at the end of the line to answer your questions. And the information about SHIL and other resources mentioned throughout today's podcast will be available below the podcast. So thanks for joining us today. And I really want to put out my thanks to the panel members. We've really heard from uh, experts who have lived experience. We've heard from those that work at the coalface in hepatitis C and sexual health. And really, my biggest thanks is to you GPs that are out there doing this work. We hope that this podcast has encouraged you to get in, have a go and know where there are resources that you can access easily if you've got any questions around sexual health and bloodborne virus. Thanks to New South Wales Health for its efforts in continuing to try and reduce the sexually transmitted infections and bloodborne virus infections across uh, New South Wales. And together we can do this, guys. It's easier than you think. Just have a go.